Hello, I'm your host, Paul Gillette, for this episode of Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. We have two segments today. Richard Bales tells us about some of the new model railroading product coming into the market and a little bit about the continuing issues impacting manufacturers with facilities in China. We're also going to touch on companies whose products are made in America. In the second segment, I'm going to be talking with Mr. DCC himself, Bruce Petrarca, about recently announced improvements to the NCE power cab and how to resolve some tricky DCC installs on older locomotives. So let's get started. Bruce Petrarca. So, Bruce, glad you're here. Hey, glad to be here, Paul. I appreciate you inviting me. Okay. Uh, most of you people know that Bruce is the uh, the guru at MRH uh, on DCC. <laughs> In the January issue, you uh, inform us about NCE uh, upgrading the hardware on their power cap. That all about. <clears throat> yeah, the for about a year now, I don't know the exact date, NCE has been shipping their power cabs with a book that said version 1.65, and it talked about things like some enhancements of the number of recalls and some things like that over the version 1.28C that had been around and popular uh, or, or available. And it caused a lot of confusion uh, amongst new folks because they get this manual that says, hey, it'll do this, 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 and this, and then they try and do it, and it doesn't do it. And it's like, okay, uh, what uh, <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, and <clears throat> so anyhow, towards the end of last year, uh, they made the new, the new version available, and um, so that's why I wanted to – I got uh, – uh, got the, the the new chip and uh, installed it and gave me a chance to uh, uh, to look at it as far as um, what it would do and uh, the the picture that's in there was my power cab I was in the process of changing changing the chip it's really pretty straightforward um, you don't have to be an electronic genius to do it you don't have to solder anything or or anything like that uh, you just um, Take off the, the the biggest problem is taking off all of the screws on the back of the of the power cab. <clears throat> they they got a bunch of them, uh, and then um, take take a screwdriver like the picture there, pry the chip out. Uh, take the new chip, uh, like I, I like to put it against, just hold it in my hand and press it against a, a table to to bring the leads in a little bit. They're spread a little bit further than the socket, so if you're not careful and you just shove it in, you might bend the lead. Uh, and, the, and their drawing from NCE and their instructions shows you how to do that. And um, so it's it's pretty straightforward. The biggest deal is making sure, especially if you've got um, uh, a radio board installed in your power cab, uh, keeping from pinching the leads uh, going from the power cab over to the radio board when you put it back together. But the, um, the big benefits are uh, going from... Two six two recalls to six recalls. Uh, two recalls still is the default, but you can go in and tell the system uh, that you want to have have all six. Now that only is Im- important or is only functional when you're using the power cab as a um, command station. You're actually using the functionality of it. If you're using it on a bigger system. 
uh, either the SB3A or um, the NCE 5 amp or 10 amp systems, whatever, uh, that function is in the command station, so that has nothing to do whether you upgrade or not. It's going to have whatever's in the command station you're using it on. So these are really changes to the command station side of the power cab uh, functionality. Now, <clears throat> prior to this 1.65 uh, software, NCE officially only supported one additional external throttle on cab address 3. It was pretty well known that both 3 and 4 worked, and so people were using both of those addresses. Now, officially, it supports three additional external throttles on th addresses 3, 4, and 5. Also, previously, if you were using the NCE um, USB adapter, that took one of those um, addresses. Uh, so you really only had three and four available uh, on the old software. And so with the new software, there are three additional addresses uh, for um, the AIU or the USB or mini panels or anything like that. So three of those can be supported without stepping on the addresses of those three external throttles. So it really enhances the functionality of the power cab uh, to run a small to medium home layout by itself without having to add a lot of um, other electronics to it. One of the things they have, it's, it's kind of a, a gimmicky thing. Uh, I tried it. I don't use it that much because I use Decoder Pro when I'm setting up a, a locomotive, but it has thumbwheel control of CV uh, values. And so if you, for example, uh, key in uh, the CV for um, the overall sound level on your locomotive, and um, you pick a number like say say it's it runs in the range from zero to two fifty five, and you say like one twenty eight. Okay, that's about half volume. Okay, and you key that in, the decoder will go uh, when you're programming on the main. The decoder will go to half volume. Then you can use the knob on the power cab just like a volume control, and you can turn it up and down. And every time you every time you turn it or push the the up or down buttons, speed buttons it will advance uh, one CV value. So it's like 128, 129, 130. You can just run it up and down until you get the, the level that you like, which is kind of neat, uh, especially for people that don't have access to a, uh, uh, you know, they may be in a situation where they don't have access to a computer. Maybe they're at their club and their club doesn't have a computer, and so they don't have, can't use Decoder Pro, but they want to adjust the volume under the conditions that they'll be running at the club. They can just sit there and, and dial it up. Um, the other thing they did with this is um, when I did the system comparison uh, last fall between the basically between Digitrax and NCE systems, I pointed out how difficult it was or how much easier it was to throw turnouts with the DT400 than it was with most every other throttle out there. And I got some feedback from some readers that said, well, you can program the, the macro button uh, on your uh, NCE cabs to to help the and this and that, but I and I I was just talking about the way it came from the factory without going out and changing things around. Well, this new one is uh, the new version of the software for the power cab is really nice in that, and I'm sure this will be coming out 
on future NCE systems, I think this is kind of the, the future of the NCE system, a lot of things here, is if you <clears throat> press select accessory, and then you press 1 for turnout number 1, and then you, pre and you press enter, and then you press 1 to close it, is the way it works now. Then to throw it, you'd have to go through and do the same thing except press a 2. And so you had a whole bunch of key presses to get in there. Now, if you go in and you press the the sequence and throw the turnout, the next time you press, if you press select accessory twice in a row, bang, bang, it will throw the last turnout to the opposite direction. So, you, so you're switching on a spur. You come down, you select the, the turnout for that spur. You throw it. You back in. Maybe you've got to shuffle three or four cars around, so you have to throw the, that, that, that spur turnout four or five times to get one car out and the car that you want in there and the cars that are in there in position. You just bang, bang, hit select accessory twice, and it will throw the turnout to, to the opposite direction. So uh, a few other, few other things, but those are the, those are the big upgrades. That's a, that's a lot of changes. Uh, and actually, I'm, I'm working on uh, here in, in my house – um, a small to medium HO scale layout. It's going to be uh, oh, you know, two feet deep and about uh, twenty to twenty-five linear feet long, uh, just around the, the perimeter of a small bedroom. And uh, with these changes, I don't see a reason for going away from the power cab to run that layout. Uh, I'm looking at a topology of having the power cab run a bus on the layout and using some of the Tam Valley Depot um, small boosters and power supplies to break it up into a couple of three different districts so that we can have two or three people operating on the layout without stepping on each other if you short out and have plenty of power uh, with that and not having any um, circuit breakers per se. So, you know, that and, – and it was marginal – especially the issue of only having one or maybe two additional throttles uh, for the besides the power cab, uh, I was getting a little a little touchy to do, you know, a small to medium layout and have more than one operator on it. But uh, with these uh, upgrades, uh, I think that I'll be able to do everything I want to without having to, to go to the uh, uh, full NCE command station, the 5-amp system. Well, yeah, because there's a... Big price point difference, too, when you go from the basic power cab and start moving up the food chain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the power cab by itself is uh, um, around $150, $160 street price. And, um, you know, and these these little Tam Valley Depot um, boosters and, and power supplies are um, around $60. And so, you know, two or three of those, you've got... You know, you got about $300, and you've got three districts and about 12 continuous amps of power. That's that's pretty pretty foxy, you know. So, yeah, versus what an SBE three. If you bought one of those to add into the basic system, I know the MSRP. What's about 160 bucks? I think it's something like that. Street will be a little bit less, but. Yeah, so there's a big difference in the amount of investment just to gain that additional power and flexibility. Uh, yeah, Tam Valley uh, offers a lot there. Okay. So I had a question, Bruce. 
back last summer when you, in a couple of your columns, you mentioned as you were reviewing different types of installs, the particular challenges on the uh, Proto 2000 E-units and PAs to get good sound out of them. And I'm sitting here looking at my shelves with about six E-units that I'm getting ready to uh, put sound in, and I thought, well, I need to find out from Bruce just what these challenges are. Okay. So what can you tell us? The um, mid-'90s vintage uh, Proto 2000 locomotives, a lot of them had some, some issues. Uh, the most spectacular, if you will, was the PA series, the ones in the, uh, the old original blue boxes. Uh, the, um, those guys, apparently they had, uh, the, 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 the urban legend is that there was a um, misunderstanding with their motor uh, manufacturer, and they didn't run right, and so they complained about the motors, and the motor manufacturer made an adjustment to the motors that resulted in the motors having a very, very low DC resistance. Well... If you've been following the column, you understand that a low DC resistance means a very high stall current. And most of those that I've looked at have a stall current in the neighborhood of three and three quarters to four and a quarter amps. Uh, there's, there's two schools of thought on decoder selection. One says that the decoder, you should look very carefully at stall current and size the decoder correctly. And other people say, no, you just need to maxima, uh, figure out what your maximum uh, operating current, you know, like full power slipping is likely to be and use that. Well, it didn't matter with these guys. With a 4-amp stall current, you put a 1-amp decoder on them, and the decoder went poof. And uh, so uh, I had, a, um, when I was on Litchfield Station, I had a great solution for that because, uh, what's the company back in New York, Train uh, Train World, had some sea um, liners, Proto 1000 sea liners that they were selling for 19.95 a piece, and the motors in them fit perfectly in the PAs. And, and so I, I was buying sea liners from Train World for 20 bucks. Uh, take the motor out, take the motor mounts, you know, the little plastic pieces off the end of the motor, put the ones from the Proto 2000 on it, and put the new motor in, and they they stalled about an amp, amp and a quarter, and it fixed the problem. Um, since then, the solutions got for the PAs has gotten a little more expensive in that uh, what I typically find is, is the best solution is the um, A-line motors. They make a, an Atherin replacement motor, which works just fine in the Proto 2000s, but they're up around $35 a piece to get a motor that will um, fit in there and um, uh, keep the stall current down where you need it. So that was the issue with the PAs. Uh, the E-units did not have the motor problem uh, at all. So their their motors, they stall oh, amp and a quarter, amp and a half, somewhere in there. So they're, they're okay. They're, you know, they're not the most efficient motors in the world, but they, they do well. And so, uh, but the issue with that whole series of cab diesels from Proto was they wanted those suckers to have just a bunch of traction, and they have a ton of weight in them, which which takes up the available room. <laughs> so 
with the uh, I tr- I've tried a bunch of different ways of uh, putting decoders in them uh, to get sound, and um, not been happy with a lot of them along the way until finally I just decided, okay, bite the bullet. I take my end mill and I just m- take the weight out of the locomotive, take it out the sh- to the shop, run the end mill down the top of it until I've removed almost all of the material that's above the motor. In other words, the motor opening is starting to get larger and larger as I take succeeding passes with the mill. Now, that's the, the, the pretty way to do it. You can do it just about as effectively with a belt sander, you know, and, and gloves because it gets hot. <clears throat> so, um, you know, that's the... Um, the, the thing there, just to get some room across the whole length of that locomotive. And then I use um, the, uh, the Atlas Lightboard style uh, decoders in there. Um, That's on the E unit and the PA both where you're removing all that weight out of the top? Yeah. And it, oh, it knocks, you know, I don't know, two or three ounces out of the locomotive. It doesn't knock that, that much weight out of the locomotive. They still, you know, will pull like mad. But you've got plenty of room. And Soundtracks actually makes a speaker uh, baffle kit uh, for those locomotives. It costs, you know, two, three bucks, and it's just some laser-cut plastic that mounts in the rear of the cab, and uh, so what I'd like to do with those units, I just, I take the electronics that's in them out, throw it away with that little flick-flick Mars light that comes with them, and, um, you know, replace that with an LED, let the decoder generate the LED um, Mars light function for you, and, um, so you've got all that room in the back where that <clears throat> electronics board was that you can take out, and um, now you can put the little box up there. And um, if I remember right, there's even room to put like a high bass speaker uh, in there uh, with a speaker outside of the box that Soundtracks provides, uh, which isn't you know I'm if you've been following the column, you know that I'm not a big fan of using speaker enclosures. But this comes out sounding really good, even with the, the plain old uh, thin-line 28-millimeter 1.1-inch diameter speaker. It really sounds good, and uh, and it runs well. And uh, so they there's some nice locomotives if you, um, if you take some weight off the top of them and uh, use the Soundtracks enclosure and change the motors if you have the, P- the PAs. Okay. Now, is that a when you do that that enclosure is that a downward firing speaker? Well, it it what it does is it uses the roof and the rear wall of the shell plus the they give you a little a little wall that's that's shaped to fit the curvature of the roof and a, a flat plate that goes in there uh and they show putting the speaker inside the enclosure. There's a couple of holes to bring the wires out, but that means that the speaker is taking up most of the volume inside the enclosure, which is necessary if you don't take that electronics out. So I take the electronics out. Now you've got room for the speaker outside of the enclosure. And in the more free air volume you have inside an enclosure like that, in general, the better it's going to sound. And so by putting, just putting the speaker so that the magnet is facing the track, the cone is facing inside the box, you're done. Then I like to put a, a, just a two-pin connector on there so that you can completely remove the shell uh, from the decoder or from the locomotive. 
And, you know, you can, you can take it off and, and uh, work on it or whatever else without having these wires and dragging the shell around and knocking the details off the, uh, the, the shell. And so they, they work really well that way. With that two-pin connector, uh, you want, what you want to do, of course, is put the male side of the connector to the speaker and have the female side connected to the decoder so that you don't have, when it's disconnected, you don't have the amplifier leads out there where they might, you know, fall down and touch the track or the motor lead or something or other else and blow the amplifier in your decoder. You know, just, just kind of an, a rule of thumb when I'm doing things like that, I always put the, um, uh, the female side of connectors connected to the decoder. That way uh, you protect the decoder as much as possible. Okay, and I believe you mentioned that in this article, the Kato locomotive, how you've oriented the, the leads on the quick uh, connector. Mm-hmm. Are you doing most of these then as a hardwire, right? Yeah. I <laughs> I find that most plug-in, they're getting better. They are getting better. But uh, early on, when they were putting plugs, 8-pin plugs, 9-pin plugs in locomotives, half the time it was more difficult to figure out what they were doing than it was to just rip out what they did and wire the decoder in. Uh, but my background's electronics. I've been soldering since I was seven years old. So the, you know, the electronic side of it is not at all intimidating to me. If somebody doesn't have uh, skills or experience in fine soldering, that could be very intimidating. And so I understand the need for uh, plug-in decoders. And they're getting better. They're getting a lot better. I used to do a clinic called the... Uh, uh, DCC ready question mark the good the bad and the ugly and uh, took to task uh, a lot of the installations uh, one of them was the proto 2000 uh, s1s uh, the first group of those they actually had an eight pin plug in the locomotive but the motor was wired to the frame of the locomotive through the plug so if you unplugged the plug that was in there, the little jumper plug that was in there, you unplug that and plug the decoder in, now you're wiring the motor side of the decoder to the frame of the locomotive. Now they had a plastic fuel tank and this and that down there, but if that frame ever touched the track, the decoder goes poof. And they had um, a lighting issue with the way they were wired, and, (laughs) by the way, on a bunch of them, the motor was wired backwards. So you'd say forward, the motor and the locomotive would go backwards. And so, uh, plus, <laughs> there were a couple of them, a couple of units, and boy, for the life of me right now, I don't even remember what they are now, but there were several of them in that era where there was an 8-pin plug. But when you unplugged the socket, the, 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 the jumper plug from the socket inside the locomotive, there wasn't room to put the smallest decoders that were available at the time in there. There just wasn't physically enough room. There's enough room for the jumper plug, but not, not room for uh, a decoder. And uh, so it's like, what are you guys thinking? But we're doing a lot better these days. <clears throat> well, we had a customer at the shop bought a new uh, P2 or Proto. And so I pulled it open, didn't take the body off, but I looked at the... Uh, instructions and I go, okay, this is DCC ready. Uh, here's a nine pin harness. And so he says, well, I want a decoder. And I, you know, we talked about what he wanted and all that stuff. And so I said, okay, this will accommodate a nine pin. But then when we took the locomotive apart, 
the nine pin, you had to do all this unsoldering and everything to get to the nine pin. And I went, holy cow, this is not DCC ready in anybody's definition. So I understand what you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. Just remove everything and make it a hard wire. Yeah, um, Bachman has caused a lot of issues with that. Uh, with their, they have capacitors on the um, board in the in the like the tender of their of their spectrum steamers, and um, what happens is a motor is when it's operating is basically a spark gap radio transmitter. You have the, the, the arcing across between the brush and the armature inside the motor, and if you just connect the motor straight to a piece of track, now the track becomes a rail. And in Europe, the uh, RF interference uh, specifications are much more stringent than they have been here in the United States. And so to meet the German, I think it is, standards, they put this little filter in there of a uh, uh, these two capacitors and, and, and inductors, and <clears throat> which is fine if you're not using it on DCC. If you're using it on DC, you need it uh, to meet the standards. When you're using it on DCC, those capacitors are across the output of the decoder between the decoder and the motor and um, tend to cause a lot of problems. So uh, I've even talked with, with uh, Lee Riley from Bachman. He says, well, just cut them out. Okay, well, but it's just one more thing. And then newer bo boards are actually going to using surface mount capacitors in there. So it isn't a matter of cut them out. It's a matter of unsolder them. And if you're, if you're, if you're good at soldering surface mount capacitors, why are you even bothering with a plug? <laughs> so yeah, okay. round and round it goes. Okay. Well, there was, and now, gosh, I think it was in Richard, one of his uh, columns on new developments out there, that MRC is coming out with a, um, a new series of decoders. And one of them, which I thought was interesting, is intended for locomotives with Two prime movers, E-unit is an example. And so they're claiming it involves a stereo effect because it comes with two speakers. Are you familiar with that? I haven't seen that one, Paul. Um... It's on their website, and I don't think it's hit stores yet. But the, the blurb was in their ad, and I thought, well, this is a really neat concept because they have circuitry that takes the signal for the front prime mover and puts it out of phase with the rear prime mover so that you get that discordant uh, sound because the two engines are uh, or two prime movers are operating independently. I thought it was a neat concept. It is a, <coughs> it is a good concept. Uh, my, my concern with it is people usually have a hard enough time getting a decent installation for one speaker in a locomotive. Now you're trying to figure out a place to put two speakers uh, and um, you know, there's some like, uh, oh, like the DD40s, uh, that there's usually plenty of room inside those. I mean, even in, in N scale, there's a lot of room inside of those, so you might be able to get a couple of speakers in those. But typically, things like E-units, uh, you don't have a lot of, uh, of spare room inside the cab to put a couple of speakers. But that's one of the reasons why I like the Tsunami decoders, because they have their um, 
special effects in there, and you can actually adjust the uh, reverb so that it sounds like two prime movers with, okay. with one speaker. Okay. All right. Well, and at the bottom of the – or at the end of the day, it's how does it sound, so. Done one. I may I may do this in a future column, uh, talk a little bit more about how to do that, and actually, uh, actually have a video where I'll turn it on and turn it off and see what – you know, let, so the people can hear the, the, the difference of it just, you know, sitting, you know, sitting there idling. Uh, it's kind of hard to, to chase it down the track with a microphone, but uh, and, and get an AB comparison that sounds worth a darn. But sit, just, even just sitting idling, the difference is spectacular. Okay, well, and you know, a lot of people just swear by by tsunami. Uh, do you have any experience with the uh, new Lock Sound 4.0? I haven't uh, since I got out of the the uh, uh, since I sold Litchfield Station. You know, I'm not as day-to-day with all the new stuff coming out as I'd like to be. Uh, and I I find I can do most anything I want to with the tsunamis, and so I just tend to stay there. Uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's a personal bias. Uh, I understand. I've, I've, I've had a good relationship with the folks in, in Durango uh, for a long time, and uh, so I like, this, I like the way they sound. I like the way they record their sounds. And uh, I'm hoping, actually... Uh, here in the next little while to actually have in one of my columns uh, start getting involved more with the um, various manufacturers. And one of the first places I was looking to go with that it would be to, I'm hope, hoping that I can have um, an interview, not quite like a podcast, but uh, a one-on-one interview with uh, the folks at Soundtracks about how they get the sound into the decoder. I did the uh, column last year on how to get how to get the sound out of the locomotive. Well, how do you get the sound into the decoder? And they have some some. Now I'm sure they're not going to share all their secrets, but they have uh, a lot of things that they do around uh, how they record. And uh, you know, it's not just simply standing beside the track and, and waiting for a locomotive to go by with a microphone in your hand. It's a whole lot. There's a whole lot more to it than that uh, to get the sound and then to get it edited. And <clears throat> I've been involved with their editing process and uh, uh, their their sound room well just just as a hint the software that they use for editing runs around thirty thousand dollars you know now you edit podcasts you know what it what it takes to do that imagine what what it takes to come up with that kind of of software to be able to because the issue are things like uh, to do a horn you have the startup of the horn, you have the sustained run of the horn, and you have the trail off of the horn. And those three, those are actually three different sound files, the start, the run, and the, and the end. And then some manufacturers will actually do a fourth, which is just a short blast of a horn. So this lets you be able to have a short blip that will always sound the same because it's one, one file, and then you can have a sustained horn that will run for, you know, a second or 30 seconds, depending upon how, how depending upon how long you hold the button down. So, uh, but the issue there is that the waveform at the end of the intro must exactly match the waveform at the beginning of the sustained portion of it, and then it must match, which must also match 
the waveform at the end of the sustain portion and at the beginning of the trail off. So there's two interfaces there where the waveforms have to be absolutely identical or else you get a hiccup in the sound uh, when it goes by. And um, I've, I've heard stories about the from the folks at Soundtracks about Steve, the uh, who's been doing the editing up till now. I don't know if they have some new folks that are doing that now. You know, he'll be in the sound room all day long getting one horn to work. So, you know, that's what's going on there. I've, I've not experienced it, but I know that uh, Jason Schron's uh, Canadian, which uh, we've sold the complete sets at the shop, coming with, uh, you know, an ABA setup of uh, FP7s, there is a Doppler effect, and I've, I've seen that referred to in, in other people's decoders. How in the world do you do that in HO scale? Well, basically, all Doppler is is a frequency shift of the sound, depending upon whether it's approaching you or going away from you. And um, it's just, it's kind of like, uh, well... Uh, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. Go back to the rock and roll bands of the 60s uh, with the um, the electric guitars with the little lever. I, I'm not a guitar player, so I don't know the name of it. The little lever that's on the bottom that will change the tension in the string so you get the wah-wah-wah effect. All you're doing is shifting the frequency just a little bit by making the strings tighter or looser by moving the lever. Well, that's the same way you do Doppler. You just... Um, if you're if you have uh, say you've got a horn that's a middle C, uh, and as it's coming towards you, um, it will the the um, frequency will be a little bit higher than it than it normally would, and then it goes away, it'll drop, and uh, so the <coughs> you can tell the microprocessor what what whether if it's, if it's coming towards you, you know you want to be off key a little bit sharp and as it's going away from you you want to be a little bit flat is in essence what what it happens which brings us kind of into a great lead into my february column which is going to involve the anatomy of a decoder and i break down the block diagram of the decoder what's in it the microprocessor the detector the power supply how they're interconnected and how they are connected to the outside world which gets important when you're doing things like uh, keep alive capacitors and uh, keep alive circuitry external to the decoder, uh, how they're, what you're actually hooking up to inside the decoder. And um, so, you know, we're talking about what the microprocessor does to generate the sounds and, uh, you know, the amplifier that amplifies the sounds. But it's what I don't think a lot of people think about is the fact that every bit of the sound that comes out of a decoder is being created as a waveform by the microprocessor inside the decoder. And so it's going to it's going to do whatever it's going to do, whatever you tell it to do. And um so the waveform files that you load into memory for it to work from, uh you're going to tell it, "Okay, take this file and do this with it." And so what you do is you say, "Okay, take the horn file that has been created and, uh, you know, bump it up in frequency. In other words, you just, you just run it faster, if you will, uh, which will raise the frequency of the, of the horn. And then as it goes, and then when you want it to 
to go away from you, you drop the frequency. So just slow down how quickly you're clocking it. Do you control or enhance that phase shift or that with a, a CV button, tapping a CV? Is that the way you think they do it? it they will be on function buttons. Um, the uh, <clears throat> there's, there's a couple of them out there, a couple of decoders out now that do have that on it. Um, and, you know, basically it's just, you know, they're usually a fairly high function, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, some, somewhere in there. Okay, thanks for the information, Bruce. And before we begin the next segment with Richard Bales, remember to check out the new issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist on the Internet. You can find us at mrhmag.com. You can read online. You can download in one of several formats. We've got one for the PC and 10-inch tablets, for the latest versions for smartphones and 7-inch tablets. And on those, you can even choose whether you want a portrait or landscape orientation. That's MRHMag.com. Okay, well, joining me this uh, section is Richard Bales. So, you know, Richard is the news editor at Model Railroad Hobbyists, and we're just going to talk about things that have uh, showed up at the Amherst Show and just other new items. So, Richard, what's going on out in our hobby land? Well, uh, I believe that uh, probably the most exciting uh, show of the year is, is Amherst. It's developed into uh, a great venue for manufacturers to announce new products, kind of have Christmas behind them, and they're looking forward to the new year. And the show that was just held uh, it was no exception. And I think, personally, I, I was very impressed with Athern's announcement on their uh, – to do the GP50. Now, earlier uh, in January, they uh, Athern announced that they would introduce three new, three brand new locomotives this year. And uh, following through on that, they made good with the announcement of the GP50, which is completely new from uh, from the ground up. And uh, I was very impressed with the variables on the three models that they that they announced they were going to do a Santa Fe unit in the uh, in the old familiar freight scheme with a blue body and a yellow nose, and then a uh, Chicago Northwestern version and a Southern version in a, in a tuxedo scheme. There were so many variables, and when I'm talking about variables, I, I'm referring to uh, prototype-specific details within each road name. It was such a long list that Athern released that in order to have it make some sense for me, I did a chart, uh, and uh, it's, it just amazes me, the, the details and the quality and the variable uh, prototype details that are going into models today. Okay, so you just mentioned uh, Santa Fe, CNW, and Southern. Are they counting that as the uh, three new models, or is the GP50 one new model and three variants, and there'll be two other new models coming out? What do you think? Well, no, the um, the three road names that I mentioned, uh, that's all within the GP50. The Athern, I spoke with Athern, and they, they still have two more brand-new locomotive models that they will introduce later this year. Uh, do you have any idea what those new models are? Are they pretty tight-lipped on it? 
they're extremely tight-lipped on on uh, on that as they were on the GP50. Um, now I, I had a um, most of the editors, including myself, received an advance notice on what it was, but we had to uh, you know swear to uh, give up our firstborn and not to reveal that information. So they're they're being very uh, cozy about uh, about what the next two uh, models are going to be. What else is new and exciting? There were several uh, other uh, exciting things uh, introduced at uh, at the Amherst show. Um, Atlas showed some uh, some samples of their new uh, Trainman series, 62 foot bulkhead flat cars. This is a big rascal. Of course, it's O scale, and uh, those of us who work in smaller scales, when you suddenly get a chance to hold and handle and look over an O-scale model. It is impressive in the, the heft and the size of these things. But the uh, the 62-foot uh, bulkhead uh, is going to be available for uh, uh, BNSF, uh, Canadian Pacific, Illinois Central, and a UP version. In the uh, um, Atlas, uh, in addition to the O-scale uh, uh, bulkhead, um, also in the Atlas booth, we saw uh, their new N-scale Thrall 4750 uh, covered hopper cars. Uh, they look terrific, and uh, those should be available within the next uh, 30 to 60 days. Um, the um, for the for the HO uh, modelers, Atlas uh, showed their new uh, 23,500 gallon general purpose insulated tank cars and those will be available in uh, in some interesting uh, road names that we weren't familiar with mm-hmm. such as uh, Inner Latex Investa and J&J Railcar Leasing so that that should be quite an interesting car okay um speaking of Atlas uh I noticed all of a sudden that at the store we started getting in Atlas Trainman kits, and uh, the response of customers who like building kits, you know, and some of some of them even lament the uh, the demise of the Athern Blue Box, are just going crazy over these Trainman kits. It's a nicely done kit. Is that relatively new form? Do you know? Um. Uh, Paul, I believe those uh, those kits uh, are part of the uh, the branch line acquisition that that Atlas made uh, uh, earlier last year. Uh, branch line had uh, had engineered some some very good kits, some very well done kits, and Atlas uh, has continued to offer uh, the line that they purchased not only in uh, ready to run versions, but they maintain the kits and and that. I think is good news for for the uh, the prototype modelers and for those who uh, still like to put together kits. One thing that that we've also been seeing a lot of, both in N scale and now start starting to filter in on the HO scale side, is product from Fox Valley. What's up with them? Well, Fox Valley is uh, is an exciting, relatively new line. Uh, they uh, they've been closely associated with uh, with Displains Hobby, and uh, at the show at the uh, at the recent 
Amherst show we were speaking about a moment ago, um, they released their schedule for, for 2013, and um, that schedule included uh, uh, some variations on the Class M53 wagon top boxcars, which are um, unusual enough to to, uh, to be kind of an exciting uh, variation on a layout. Uh, and the the first three roads that are going to come out on the M53 wagon tops are not for prototype roads, but they're for some very well-known model railroads. Uh, and those roads are going to be the Allegheny Midland, uh, Virginia and Ohio, and the Cumberland Valley system. So that should be quite interesting uh, for a, a lot of hobbyists. And along with those uh, with those three. Uh, model railroad roads. The uh, the prototype versions will be out for uh, Baltimore and Ohio, and that big bold billboard scheme that uh, is so easily uh, recognized. Um, all of these cars are going to have Youngstown doors. They will have uh, flat version doors uh, for the B and O Express, which is uh, which carries a green livery. And for a very unusual uh, scheme, the 1939 World's Fair, and frankly, I had never seen that scheme before, but it, it was a, an actual prototype uh, that uh, was carried on that uh, wagon top car. That will be available from Fox Valley in both uh, HO and N-scale versions. Okay. I know when they first showed up uh, right before Christmas, uh, we're a uh, – you know, a Western Road store. I mean, the majority of the road days going out of there are UP, SP, and the original Santa Fe. And there were a couple of modelers came out of the woodwork, you know, over these B&O wagon tops. And, I mean, we had to restock them uh, two, three times. So very popular. Well done car, too. Well done. Um, also on Fox Valley's uh production schedule for this year, uh, they're going to do some variations on a ribside Milwaukee road caboose. And okay. the new the new variations will have uh, the oil tanks uh, added and uh, modernized ends, which include a, uh, a a modernized ladder with splash guards. And that will uh, will be available in, uh, in a maintenance away version as well. So Fox Valley is uh, is suddenly doing some some very exciting things and kind of shaking up the market, doing a good job. Well, Richard, what about the uh, you know we're still seeing the residual effects of of the situation in China, uh, most specifically uh, certain items of Atlas Track of, are still not available. Uh, so at the store. We've switched uh, our flex track, our code 83 flex track, to microengineering. One, it's a, it's a very good product. It's well made, but it's made in America. Uh, it's made in Texas. Uh, and then the other day, somebody was mentioning to me, because we carry a lot of AccuRail, that they're made in America. So, you know, do you have any insight on this continued, uh, you know, snagging the supply line with China, and then are there other people, you know, 
wanting to get more America-made products? What do you hear? Well, you mentioned uh, AccuRail, and I think uh, for a couple of reasons that that is a, a very well-accepted product. Uh, it is an American product. Um, they're in the uh, in the Chicago area, and uh, they quietly have been around for a long time, and they uh, they seem to be uh, be able to maintain uh, a good place in the market, uh, even though we're in a, a ready-to-run world. Uh, AccuRail continues to put out kits only. They're made in America. Um, they are, uh, uh, they're not the most sophisticated models for, uh, prototype modelers, but they, uh, they certainly do a great job of, of replacing the old Athern uh, blue box kind of mentality. And, and they're very, very well priced. Their kits run around, uh, 15, 16, 17, 18 dollars. At, uh, at list price, uh, and as we all know, and as we've all flinched, uh, at the, uh, 30, 40, and who knows, maybe $50 price for, uh, for ready to run freight cars. Um, AccuRail has, uh, they do all their tooling, uh, and their manufacturing in, uh, in the United States, and, uh, they're, they've become very active, uh, they, they are bringing out Two or three brand new tooled, uh, car bodies annually. And they announce, uh, usually about six or seven or sometimes eight brand new road schemes, uh, for existing car bodies every month. And, uh, they're very, uh, they're very nice kits. They're terrific kits. I highly recommend them. Yeah. We have a, we keep a, uh, a good stock of, uh, AccuRail kits. Uh, now, I've used microengineering's, you know, raw code 83 rail for hand laying for quite a while. And when we couldn't, you know, get, uh, any of the Atlas code 83, you know, I said, Bob, why don't we start bringing this in? Look at this. Yeah, it's made in the United States. And, uh, so we've brought in some, uh, smaller orders. We did some uh, special orders for some people, and now we regularly, uh, you know, run through our sock and bring it again. It's an excellent product, and it's made in in Texas. Well, I've used I've used some of it myself, and uh, yeah, it's it's great track work, and uh, there's, uh, the fact that it uh, it is domestic product seems to uh, be very much in its favor. Yes. And the thing that I show people when I'm, they look at it and I said, what do you remember about traditional Code 83 or even Code 100 flex track? And they said, well, if you let, once you bend the radius, if you let go, it springs back to straight. And I said, okay, let me show you this. And when I show them, because both rails float, that it holds its radius, you know, they're just, their eyes get real big and, you know, that's a that's a boon, and I'll go. Well, look, the first one till you understand how these ties move. I said it'll probably take you about thirty some minutes to to bend the first piece, but then you'll understand the knack of how to do this, and it's just a really great product. That yeah, is, I agree, I agree, and availability has been consistent. Yes, 
Yep, it sure has. Uh, and there have been some inconsistencies in, in availability and in, in track and turnout, so uh, it seems that microengineering has a lot of things going for it. Yeah, small company, and uh, I guess part of the operations still down in Fenton, Missouri, and then over in Texas, you've got the uh, it's where the track is made. I've seen the video uh, of the the track being made, running through the uh, the injection mold machine. It's just really, really cool. Uh, and speaking of Texas, uh, I Plano. Plano Products there in Plano, Texas, is American-made detail parts. Correct. The, uh, I mean, I am a big fan of their etched metal parts, and I just finished doing a uh, well car set with one of their detail kits. Now, it's maddening, and some of the parts are just really small, but when you get done, I mean, wow, it's a very striking uh, model. Yeah, so, and, and unlike some uh, people in the etch business, uh, Plano has, has had some uh, very, very good quality and very consistent in their product from one run to another. So they, they yep. seem to have mastered that technique very well. Yeah, don't uh, don't know how he does it, but yes, I've been using his walkway kits for two, three years on a long line of you know cheap cars, making them look real good for posing and photos and stuff. Yeah, right. it's excellent. Um, it's interesting that the, uh, the some of the lines that we've mentioned here today and talked about, um, microengineering, Plano, and um, AccuRail, all of those companies are owned by active model railroaders. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that we're seeing such nice things coming out of those uh, companies. Could be. Absolutely. Excellent point. They know what the expectation is, and apparently they've figured out a way to deliver it great. That's correct. Well, it's been nice talking to you today, uh, Paul, and I'll look forward to uh, another discussion in the future. Okay, Rich. Thank you. Well, and that wraps up today's show. Hope you've enjoyed it. Look for us at uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast on Facebook. It's a new site up there. Give us your thoughts, your concerns, your suggestions. Appreciate it. Uh, pretty soon there'll be a blog listed on the the uh, main page of Model Railroad Hobbyist. And don't forget to check out the latest issue at mrhmag.com. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and thank you for listening.